0: Amen. We're in John 6 this morning. John chapter 6, verse 15. I want to preach to you um, something I preached before, Jesus walking on the water, but John gives a really unique uh, view of it, and I think in light of what John says here, there are some things that are just a blessing to me uh, in my heart, and I enjoy so much what is found here, especially in this passage. I'm excited to share it with you this morning, John 6, and uh, beginning in verse 15, we'll read down through verse 21, where the story is told. Let's stand together and we'll read the passage, John 6, verse 15. These are the words of God. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone, and when even was now come, his disciples went down unto the sea. And entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship, and they were afraid. But he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. Thank you for setting before us our Lord Jesus Christ and showing us who he is. And then as we see him for who he is, Lord, we thank you that we are able to know you, know what you are like, what what you want from us. We can glorify you more, Lord, but we can be more loyal to you and faithful to you. And also, Lord, we can be greatly comforted and encouraged by the light of knowledge that you give us in your word. And I pray that you'd help us, that we would enjoy what you say here in this passage, that it would be strengthening to us, that we would understand more how you work with us, what you do. In your dealings with us. And as we understand that Lord. I pray that you would increase our faith. And our confidence. In you as a result. Lord please help us. To listen attentively. This morning I pray that. Our lives would be open to you. And anything. Anything at all. Our thinking. Our behavior. Our attitudes. Anything that needs correction Lord. I pray that you would correct it. And that you do so for your name's sake, so that your glory can be displayed in our holiness, our manner of life. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Matthew and Mark also record this miracle, so it's recorded in three of the four Gospels. Both Matthew and Mark and John place this miracle immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. So this is and sometimes different Gospels don't always stick with the chronological order of Christ's life. But in this case, we can be certain that this happened immediately after Jesus fed the 5,000. Jesus, when he had fed the 5,000, perceived that the mob would come and take him by force to make him a king, as verse 15 tells us. And for that reason, by the way, they're, they're gathered on the hillside just outside of Tiberias. Tiberius is a pretty important city, named for the emperor of Rome. And so it's, it's just interesting how now Jesus does this and where the setting is and the backdrop and so on. But for that reason, Jesus constrained the disciples to get into the ship while he sent the mob home. Then Jesus went further up into the mountain to pray by himself. As we noted during our week of prayer this last week, Uh, where we gathered and prayed every night uh, except for Friday and had a wonderful time in prayer, but we noted also the amount of praying that our Lord Jesus did and um, we should uh, he who needed it least of all prayed most of all and we should be encouraged to spend time in prayer as a result. Apparently the disciples waited for a while to see if Jesus would come with them. That's what what we get from verses 16 and 17. So it was late that evening before they launched up that, between Tiberius and Capernaum, on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, um, just along the coast there, really. when they were about halfway across. And John is very specific, you notice in the text, very specific about the distance. They're about halfway across, maybe more, right? It seems like. A furlong, uh, the Greek word is stadion. Our word stadium comes from it, and the idea is essentially the length of a stadium, uh, about 200 yards. All right, so they've gone 25 or 30 of these furlongs, which would be about three miles and that's about the length, half the length of the Sea of Galilee. And Tiberius is about halfway down. And so I'm thinking, I'm just looking at it and thinking that um, they may have been very close to Capernaum. They may have been within sight of Capernaum. Maybe they could see the glow of the lights and this wind comes up. Matthew and Mark tell us that it was a contrary wind that whipped up the waves And they were rowing against it. They're rowing into the waves. Now, I'm sure that you've all, at some time in your life, faced a contrary wind. I faced them in a variety of places, none that were especially treacherous. Um, But uh, if you've ever been running, you know, and the wind is blowing in your face, uh, especially if you're not enjoying the run, you enjoy it less when you have the wind in your face. My wife and I take a walk every day. And uh, it's amazing. We'll be walking and uh, going in one direction, and uh, the wind is behind us. We don't even notice it. And then we turn around, and it's like, you are you know, walking like this uh, into the wind there. A uh, couple times that I've been on Cawzi, and uh, we love to go kayaking up there, and uh, the wind, you know, in those canyons can be pretty stiff. And sometimes, you know, when you're going out, And the wind is behind you and you just set the paddles down and let the wind blow you for a while and take your ease, you know, kick back for a little bit. And then you turn around and try to come back. And it's amazing how hard you can row and little ground you can gain. Even one time when I was driving across Nebraska. I'm waiting for that amen. Amen. All right, there you go. All right. I'm driving across Nebraska and you know. It's when you're driving west on I 80, you're almost definitely going to get wind in your face. And you watch, you know, your mileage go from on the way out when the wind was at my back, I was getting 30 miles a gallon. And then on the way back, I'm getting two, I think, because the winds are contrary. So you can imagine their discouragement, especially if the lights of Capernaum are off there in the distance and they're thinking that they're getting close to home and they're rowing and rowing and the wind is blowing against them and they're getting no closer to Capernaum than what they were. Mark tells us that Jesus saw them toil in rowing. Saw them. He was not with them but he had not forgotten them at the fourth watch of the night, which is between three and six in the morning, darkest hour of the night, hours. The disciples saw Jesus walking on the sea, drawing nigh to the ship. John tells us that they were afraid. imagine that, right. I mean, these are big, tough fishermen. But uh, when you see someone walking on the water, that's a little unsettling right there. Matthew and Mark both say that they were afraid because they believed that it was a ghost. And Mark says that Jesus intended to walk right past them and keep walking to the shore. I think that there are a variety of things we can imagine here. They're rowing, toiling, and rowing getting nowhere, and then Jesus is walking and he's getting somewhere and aiming to walk right past them as well. He has Mark has a reason for telling us this, which we'll get into later. But in their panicked minds, the disciples cried out, as Mark tells us, for they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them, and saith unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. Matthew tells us that Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. That's the part of the story that we love. Peter also walking on the water, and usually when this particular story is preached, We preach about Peter walking on the water. But Jesus talked to them. He said, it is I. Be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship. And when he climbed into the ship, he worked two miracles immediately. First of all, the storm ceased. And secondly... They were immediately at the land where they went. That's that's a miracle. If you've ever been on the water, you know, it takes time to get across the water. It's unusual for John to include a story that interrupts the theme of a chapter. His chapters tend to fall fall under very concise themes. And uh, most of the time in the Gospel of John, he begins with, a story, an event that happened, and then the rest of the chapter kind of unpacks that and the meaning and importance of it. So why does John insert this miracle right here, which seems to have nothing to do with Jesus feeding the 5,000, and the theme of John chapter 6, which is the theme of the loaves, the bread. Jesus is the bread of life, and so on. It's been suggested that John includes this story here, because, well, because this is where it goes chronologically, and so that's, this is the natural order for it. Jesus walking on the water is always linked with the feeding of the 5,000, and also it explains how Jesus and the disciples got from Tiberias to Capernaum, so it could be part explanatory here, but, but we're interested in spiritual meaning and spiritual importance. We want food that will feed our hungry souls. And and in fact, this is a story that is in the middle of the theme of the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. So how can we be fed by what happens here? John's account and Mark's account of these stories complement each other very well. Mark 6 and verse 52 points out the continued unbelief and hardness of heart of the disciples. And he went up unto them into the ship and the wind ceased and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered, now listen to what John said. I'm sorry, not John, Mark. What Mark said, Mark 6, 52. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves For their heart was hardened. So the amazement of the disciples. Was an amazement that demonstrated that they had given very little thought. To Jesus feeding the 5,000. And they had given very little thought to it because their hearts were hardened. They had not considered it. By the way, I pause here for a moment and I point out to you that often the reason why when we hear we sit under the preaching of the word of God and we hear the preaching, but there are things we just don't get and we don't try to is because our hearts are hard. We're not reaching for it because our hearts are hard. Building on what Mark said, and I think that John, in his account, is complementing what Mark said in his and adding a little bit to it. John helps to narrow our focus here. John tells us that in the miracle of the loaves, Jesus initiated things by asking Philip where to buy bread. The other three accounts of the feeding of the 5,000 all have the disciples going to Jesus with the problem which Jesus then resolved. But in John's account, Jesus goes to the disciples and asks them. And John makes it very clear that Jesus is asking them because he is testing them. He knew what he would do. He's testing them. Now that helps us to understand this part of the story. Jesus walking on the water. Jesus let the disciples learn. At the feeding of the 5,000. He let the disciples learn. Several important things. They should have learned these things then. They eventually came to understand these things. And they, uh, John the, the apostle. Wants us to grasp these things as well. But here are a couple of things in no particular order that Jesus was teaching the disciples when he fed the 5,000. He let the disciples learn, first of all, that they didn't have the answer. They didn't have the answer. Jesus let Andrew survey the audience to see how much lunch he could find there. And when Andrew did... Then Jesus let the disciples learn that they couldn't find the answer. They didn't have the answer. They couldn't find the answer somewhere else besides Jesus. They couldn't find it anywhere else. They couldn't find it in the crowd. They couldn't find it in the audience. They couldn't find it in the marketplaces around them. when they reached the end of their hoarded resources, Jesus showed them that he had the answer. He had it. No, in fact, he went beyond that. He showed them that he was the answer. He was. He is the answer. The lesson of the the feeding of the 5,000 is that Jesus is enough. He has enough. But he is enough. In fact, Jesus is more than enough because there were 12 baskets full of the leftovers from that boy's lunch when Jesus fed the 5,000. Now, God is telling us about Jesus walking on the water and setting it in context with the lessons that the disciples just learned that Jesus is enough, that Jesus has enough, that Jesus, in fact, is more than enough. When Jesus fed the 5,000, he did it for the sake of the Galileans who were gathered there as well as for the sake of the disciples. He had a message for the people which he explains in the rest of this chapter when the people catch up with him. But in between, Jesus also has a lesson for his disciples. And that lesson is important to you and me who also are disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. This miracle, walking on the water, was intended specifically, and we might say exclusively, or the disciples, except that it's also a lesson for you and me as well. Keep in mind that John's gospel has this one overriding theme that is a point that John makes over and over and over again. He's not pointing at Jesus and saying, this is the Messiah. But rather, he describes the Messiah to you and then says, this Messiah Is this Jesus of Nazareth, the man that I'm describing to you here? This seems to be the point in both miracles, in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and in the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. You want to know who is the Lord of the natural world? Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son, steps forward. And he says, it is I. It is I. Jesus said these words as he walked by the disciples on the water and they cried out in fear. He said, it is I. Be not afraid. At the time, the disciples still don't know who Jesus is, not really. But years, when John recorded this, years have passed since that event. And John has had plenty of time to roll it over and over in his mind and to think on these things and meditate on these things. And he's come to realize that there were a lot of obvious things right there in front of my face that I didn't see. But I see it now. By the time John wrote his gospel, he knew full well who Jesus was. But John lets us see how much the disciples struggled to understand. He lets us in on it. He lets us see it. He lets us, in fact, experience it with them. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. You're on the sea. The winds are contrary. And Jesus comes walking As if he's going to walk right by you. You think it's a ghost. You're terribly afraid. Somewhere in the midst, Peter asks, if it's you, Lord, bid me to walk on the water, and Jesus does, and Peter walks on the water. Peter does. You know that it's Jesus, but you don't know who Jesus is, though. They keep seeing Jesus do things that only God can do. And they're not. This is what we have to get. Because we think that if we had lived at that time, we would have seen Jesus and we would have known it was God and we would fall at his feet and we would worship him and we would honor him and we would follow him. And John the Apostle wants you to know that I was right there. I saw him. I saw what he did. I saw him do the works that only God can do. And I still wasn't sure because it didn't look right. Didn't seem like that was the case. They saw Jesus do things that only God can do and they kept misunderstanding. Jesus does the things that only God can do and there's a reason why he does because he's God. He is God. He is. But the disciples keep missing it because. And Mark tells us why they miss it. It's not. It's not because they. It was an illusion. They were confused about what they were seeing. They knew what they were seeing. And they misunderstood it. Because. Their hearts were hard. That's Why? Maybe we can learn from their mistakes and not harden our hearts against the Lord Jesus. Now, Jesus has a wonderful message for us in this miracle. I trust that you'll follow along as I show it to you. Let me point out three highlights from the story, and then I'll show you the message. First of all, here's highlight number one. It was dark, and they were alone. It was dark, and they were alone. In verse seventeen, John tells us that it was dark. that's intentional. This is not just so that he's setting the stage all right John in his gospel uses darkness to give to give you the backdrop of the picture and remember from the very beginning, we're told that Jesus came as a light in a dark place in a dark world. We're told that men love darkness rather than light because they're Deeds were evil. This is a theme in the Gospel of John. <clears throat> he uses a point, he uses darkness to make a point, and he does it several times in the Gospel. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. He's a ruler of the Jews, a religious authority. Knows the, he says to Jesus, We know that you're a teacher come from God, because no man can do the miracles that you do except God be with him. He knows, right? Except he doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't know. Because again, there's this optical illusion. He's thinking, this can't be the Messiah. Look at him. He's a Galilean. He's from Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? (coughs) In this story, John wants us to connect the darkness of the night and the absence of Jesus. To see those two paired together two things to point out first when jesus is not there it will seem especially dark it will seem that way yes it's true jesus is always there he is mark reminds us that he saw them toil and rowing so he wasn't there in presence in bodily presence but he was certainly there but he comes and he goes as he pleases, according to his purpose, so that his immediate physical presence is not always there. Now, I recognize, and let me say, I'm going I'm to go off on a little rabbit trail here for a second. And in doing so, I recognize that illustration is an imperfect art. And there are illustrations that we give that work in one sense, but not in another. The poem "Footprints" might be a good example of that. I'm sure that everybody is familiar with the poem. "Footprints" is not exactly a poem, but this idea of you know two sets of footprints walking down the sandy beach, and then once in a while it just becomes one, and the person is looking back and seeing the trail of footprints, and and that's depicting Jesus being with them throughout their life, walking alongside them. And then once in a while, one set of footprints disappears, and it's only one set of footprints now. And the person is confused about it. Why is this? Did you leave me for a little while? Jesus answers, according to the poem. He answers and says, no, those were the times when you went through rough times, and I picked you up and carried you. He says, And certainly that fits with our experience in some ways. Right there. Certainly, I don't like to spoil the good vibes that we get from sentimental poems like that. But I don't believe Jesus picks us up and carries us every time things get rough. Okay? I'm just going to tell you that. I don't believe that. All right? Look, when my kids were little toddlers, I picked them up when it got tough, all right? But pretty much, and my rule was kind of like this. Once they start using deodorant, I'm not picking them up anymore and carrying them through the tough times, all right? Now I'll say I modified it to once they ought to be using deodorant, I'm not picking them up and carrying them anymore, all right, through the rough spots, <clears throat> my wife and I did not want to raise our kids to be handicapped by our extraordinary care, tender care, all right? And there's a lot of that. I mean, we have created like a whole generation of snowflakes, cupcakes, and so on uh, today. And uh, I, I was telling folks, I, I know I've said this already, but some of you weren't here to hear the good story. Uh, my wife was listening to the radio, and someone in California Um, Some was whimpering that I had PTSD because of all the rain and all the flooding two years ago, he said. And now this rain and this flooding has triggered me all over again. And then my wife said with marvel and amazement in her voice, and that was a man speaking. we were like, yeah, the the tyrants of the world are not looking at America thinking we need a bigger army. They're more like, when do we do it? Because we are a nation of snowflakes. Lots of people who have been picked up and carried long past the time when they should have been. I like, personally, the way C.S. Lewis illustrates it with Aslan. If you're against the Chronicles of Narnia, you have a conviction against them. You know, I'm sorry. But um, you ought to read them. You really ought to read them. Great stories. Great stuff. But Aslan comes and goes as he pleases. Shows up when you weren't expecting. Leaves the kids. By the way, the story is about kids. Leaves them to pick their way through the problems and usually doesn't show up until long after the problem has passed. And usually when showing up, points out what they did right and what they should have done better or could have done better. But Aslan is never far away. Now, whatever illustration you might find more preferable. We know that in this particular storm, it was dark and Jesus wasn't there. And the second point is this. There will be times in your life when it will be dark and Jesus won't come. He won't come. And often in those times, the reason he doesn't come is because he sent that storm. He sent that storm. I know that this contradicts our warm and fuzzy thoughts of Jesus, who's supposed to swoop in and make the storm go away for us. Nonetheless, I said what I said and I stand by it to the death. Sometimes, sometimes the point is to send us a storm. And so that's the second thing I want to show you from the story is that a great wind blew. Jesus had prepared a storm for his disciples. It seems to me that he sent it when they were somewhere in the vicinity of Capernaum well on their way to Capernaum. They must at least have been close, or at least halfway, maybe more than halfway. It was a storm they were not prepared for, but, you know, like how many of you have the ability to schedule when you're going to be sick? Huh? I got sick this last week. It was a week going into it that I knew because we're, you know, my wife and I headed out of town, thanks to you all, Um, this next week, and and I have, you know, the week before you go out of town, you have triple the work to do, and I knew that, and uh, all weekend, I was rehearsing all the things that I had to do, and bam. I'm laid low. It was not on my schedule. It was not on my calendar. So, you know, I just didn't let myself be sick, but God, when God sends a storm, it is on His schedule and not yours. And normally, it comes when you weren't expecting it. And in fact, when you are ill prepared for it as well. Not only had God prepared the storm for them, but Jesus sent them into that storm. The Bible tells us that directly, that Jesus sent them out on the sea. His commandment put them in the storm. So in other words, and get this, they were in the storm because they obeyed Jesus. How's that? This is not fair. This is not the way it's supposed to be. There's that guy down in Houston that tells me all the time that if I just follow Jesus, everything is going to go smooth. It's going to be a glassy sea. It's just going to be like paradise on earth. And Jesus gives people a commandment. And when they obey it, the result is that they face a storm. This doesn't fit with the American prosperity theology. The third thing I want to point out to you, because I'm not going to resolve that for you. All right. I'll let you resolve it for yourself. But the third thing I want to point out to you is from the story that Jesus walked on the water. And he was coming to make it all better, right? Right? Now, of course, he did make it all better. He did, certainly. But we learn a strange thing from Mark that I pointed out to you earlier, and I want to go back and focus on it now. Because Mark tells us that he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed by them. He would have passed by them. Do you see that? Well, you don't see it, but you hear it. You hear that, right? He would have passed by them. Have you ever had that before, where you're in trouble, or you're suffering, you're struggling, And somebody comes in, you know, comes along and sees you and and they don't do anything. They don't offer anything. They don't help you. And you say, hey, could you help me for a minute? And then you look at him and say, you weren't going to help me at all. You were going to go right on by. Like, you know, like the the Levite with the Samaritan, right? Like the priest with the Samaritan. You were going to walk right on by. And it's an accusation. Jesus was going to walk right on by. <coughs> and this is where our Christian commonplaces often fail us. Because when we have a problem, you know, when I have a problem, I pray and Jesus comes and fixes it all. Right? I mean, I spill the milk. He cleans it up. I drop the glass. He sweeps up all the shards of glass. That works for us until Jesus doesn't come and fix my problem. And then we lose our faith. We lose it. Jesus failed us. Look at him. He walked right on by. And they said he would never leave me or forsake me. But then I was out on the sea in that storm, and he walked right on by me. He left me. He forsook me. Too many have had their faith shattered when Jesus didn't meet their expectations. But isn't that the problem? Who sets the expectations for who? We can expect Jesus to be who he is and to do what he says he does. But we have to look in the Bible to find the right expectations for Jesus. Meanwhile, Jesus is the one setting expectations for you and me. Now about right now, I'm guessing that there might be one or two people about to lose patience with me in my message because this is just not the way preachers are supposed to preach. This is not the comfort that I came to hear this morning. I'm trampling on all your favorite songs, on all your pet ideas and ideals about prayer. And I'll tell you, in many ways, we're every bit as hard-hearted as what the disciples were. Now, in their defense, they had an excuse. They did not have the entirety of the revealed will of God in Scripture. <clears throat> they did not have the light that we have because we have the whole Bible, the whole canon of Scripture. I hope that you'll listen to what I have to say. And the first thing I want to say is that, of course, Jesus wants to help us in our storms. Of course he does. The, the issue here is not with whether. He wants to help us, but rather with what he considers help as opposed to what you might think of as help. Jesus is not bound to give us the help that we think we need. Jesus gives us the help that he wants us to have, not always the help that we want to have. Calming our fears, relieving our problems, ending our troubles is not always what we need. Not always. And in this case, Jesus wanted his disciples to know something. In fact, it's something that he wants you and me to know as well. What he's trying to teach us over and over and over again throughout this gospel, throughout the entirety of scripture and throughout our lives. There's one thing over everything else, one thing that Jesus wants you to know. He wants to teach you and he uses instruction from the word of God. He uses trials and tribulations and storms. He uses successes and failures to teach us this one overriding theme. He wants us to know that he is in control of the entire universe. He wants us to know that, and he wants us to know it on a personal level. He is in control of the entire universe. Now, pause for a minute and think about that. If we don't know that, if we don't know that Jesus is in control of the entire universe, then our prayers for healing, for help in distress will always have an element of doubt in them. If you don't know that Jesus is the Lord of the whole universe, then when you pray to Him, you're not exactly certain that He can do anything about this. And so before you cry out to Him for help, It ought to be settled in your mind. That he is Lord of everything. If it is not settled in your mind. This is what happens. It's a subtle thing. But it's important that you know it. And recognize it. When it is not a settled conviction. In our mind that Jesus is Lord of everything. In the universe. Then our prayers will turn into a test for God. I'm praying this, wondering if you really are as almighty and all-powerful as what people say you are. Our prayers become a challenge for God to prove himself to us. Now I can assure you and reassure you, That God is not in the business of proving himself to doubtful people over and over and over again. He doesn't do that. He calls on you to believe. Believe in him. Be confident in him. But when we are not confident in him, then there's an element of challenge in the prayers that we pray, especially When we're desperate, because we want God to prove that He is God. Now, whether the crisis involves health or family or finance, our prayers take on this attitude if you're really there, God, then you can fix this. And of course, that is true. But God wants to take you beyond that. He doesn't want you to constantly have to have him, his reality. He doesn't want you to constantly have to have him prove himself to you. God wants to show us not just that he's there, which is something we know, we know innately. We don't need it to be told to us. even. He doesn't just want you to know that he's there. He wants you to know that he's God. He is God. But of course, if God is in control, well, then that means something. And one of the things it means, if God is in control, it means that we can't dictate to him by means of our prayer. We can't force his hand. Jesus intended to pass by them And if he had passed by them, it would not have been to their damage. It would have been for their good. In fact, if he had passed by them, he would have shown them irrefutably that I am God and there is none else, that I alone control the entire universe. But let me explain how Jesus passing by them would have shown them that he was God. Let's take a look at other times when God passed by his people. Because interestingly enough, there are only two other times in the word of God where God passed by his people. I first uh, learned this from Dave Furman, who wrote a book that was a great help to my wife called Kissing the Wave. Exalting God in your trials. Furman points out two other times in the Old Testament when Jesus passed by someone. The first time was in the book of Exodus. When Moses asked to see God's glory. You remember that God passed him by. And when he did, this is what he said. And this is instructive to us. When God passed by Moses... He said this. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. In other words, the way God showed Moses his glory was by passing by him and declaring to him who I am and what I do. In other words, God showed Moses that I am God and there is none else. Now, the second time that God passed by someone is less familiar to us. And in fact, might come as a surprise to you. There was a time in the life of Elijah when he was very discouraged. He had just slain 400 prophets of Baal. He was exhausted physically, emotionally, spiritually exhausted. And in that state of exhaustion, Jezebel threatened his life. And she had the power to kill him. And when Jezebel threatened his life, Elijah fled from Mount Carmel, which is in the far north of the land of Israel, all the way to Beersheba, which is the extreme south of Israel. He ran all that way in his exhaustion. He ran all that way. First Kings 19 tells us that he left his servant there in Beersheba and traveled a day's journey farther south into the wilderness of Judah where he sat under a juniper tree and he requested to God that he might die. While he slept there, the angel of God came and touched him twice and bid him eat. And the Bible says that he ate and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days. In those 40 days, Moses traveled, I'm sorry, not Moses, Elijah. Elijah traveled, you'll see why I said Moses in a minute. He traveled to Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, the place where God passed by Moses. He traveled there. And there at Mount Sinai. Elijah poured out his complaint. To God. And he said this. I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. Thrown down thine altars. And slain thy prophets with the sword. And I. Even I only. Am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Here, Elijah, I've been obeying you, Lord. I've been doing what you said. And you've let this go and let it be hard for me. And this is what God said to Elijah in response. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord, and behold, The Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. It's the same thing. Happened in the same place the same way. When God passed by Elijah, he showed Elijah that he was God. On that stormy night in the Sea of Galilee, Jesus intended to show his disciples that he was God. He intended to pass by them just as he had passed by Moses and Elijah. And once again, John the Apostle didn't understand until later when he reflected on the life of Christ as he rehearsed all the things that had happened throughout Christ's life. At the beginning of his gospel, reflecting on the life of Jesus of Nazareth, John said, and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Because on that dark and stormy sea, Jesus did something that only God could do, and it wasn't that he walked on the water. And it was. Job 9 and verse 8, which alone spreadeth out the heavens and treadeth upon the waves of the sea. Though Jesus didn't pass by them that night. He did in fact show them. That he was God. And they didn't quite catch on. Right away. And Mark tells us that this is because of the hardness. Of their heart. If their eyes had been open. If they had been paying attention and alert. To Christ's message. They would have seen Jesus pass by them. Walking on the water. And they would have known that this storm is nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Because Jesus is the Lord of the storm. He is, in fact, in control of it. If they had waited and not cried out to Him, they might have seen it for themselves if they had paid attention. But they could only see their storm. And their fears in that storm. But when they cried out to him, he replied, it is I, be not afraid. By the way, isn't that a wonderful thing about Jesus? His disciples aren't getting it and their hearts are hard. That's why they're not getting it. But Jesus is not harsh with them in response. He meets their needs where they, where they are. The phrase Jesus used when he said, It is I, be not afraid. The phrase that he used in the Greek is ego, amy. Ego, amy is a pretty common phrase in the Gospel of John. It is normally rendered, I am. Ego, amy. I am. The King James translated, translates it as a generic, It is I, because the point here is not that Jesus is calling himself by the Old Testament covenant name of Yahweh, I am. That's not the point. He, does, he says, I am. But that's not the way the disciples take it and that's not the way Jesus meant it. The point is that it was Jesus. It is I that's what he's saying it is I it's me and the point Jesus is making is that's all you need it's me and that's all you need you need Jesus I'm the one who rules the waves and the storm I am what you need I am You don't need money. You don't need health. You don't need a nice house. You don't need good things. You don't need happiness. You need Jesus. And if you have Jesus, then your storm itself will be bearable. And your trials will be joy and rejoicing. If it weren't for that hard heart, the disciples might have seen Jesus pass by and recognized that even in the teeth of that storm, he was still ruling. He was still in control. So let's put these two miracles together. The feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on the water. <clears throat> let's take stock of the message here. Because John has a, a, a theme, a point that he's driving at over and over. In the miracle of the loaves, as the disciples lugged around basket after basket of bread and fish, Jesus was sending a very clear message. I am the bread of life. He draws from that message in the rest of John chapter 6. But his point is, I am everything you need. I am. All those people who gathered there, probably 20,000 people who gathered to hear Jesus speak on that hillside in Galilee, They've all come hoping that Jesus will organize them and rally the troops and lead them against the emperor, against Rome. And instead, Jesus feeds them and sends them through that food a message. I am what you need. Not deliverance from Rome, but me. Get that. Because we're living in a day when to watch the news is to be discouraged, to despair for our country, to think that we're all going to die. And this is the message to you. There have been believers who have suffered under far worse regimes. Than, I mean, it's even ridiculous to compare it. We're here in America, we're gathered In God's house on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. We still have freedom to assemble and to worship. We shouldn't act like this is like the Rome in its most desperate days. We're not in the catacombs. And yet we're despairing. What is wrong with us? We have Jesus. That's his point. I am everything you need. I'm enough. No, no, it's not, that's not right to say Jesus is enough. Jesus is more than enough. More than enough. More than what you need. There's a lot left over after you've taken everything. You will never exhaust him. Never run out of what you need when you have Jesus. I give more. That's Jesus' message. More than you have. More than you had to begin with. More than you want. More than you need, I am that and then Jesus, by his own sovereign will, sent his disciples out into a storm and bid him to trust, bid them to trust him in the face of that storm. Because again, in the storm, in the great wind that blows, Jesus is still enough. When the waves are coming over the brow of the ship. And there's more sea in the ship than there is in the sea. We're getting, the, instead of the boat being in the water, the water's in the boat. And Jesus still is enough. When you're hungry, he's enough. When you face a trial, he's enough. When you're in a storm, he's enough. Jesus wanted to teach the disciples, in fact, that they were not adequate. They were not sufficient. He wanted them to learn that he is. He is what I need. In your storms, remember that. Jesus is enough. You might think that what you really need is for him to take the storm away. I mean, that's what we all think, right? Let's be honest. When we're in a storm, it's just like, can you please just take this away? You know, I mean, never mind that of the 365 days of the year, you know, 8 out of 10 have been really wonderful. I just can't live with these 20% of the problem right here. It triggers me. But you don't need Jesus to take the storm away necessarily. What you do need definitely is Jesus in that storm. You need to trust him. You need to rely on him. You need to feed on him. He won't always carry you out of the storm. Sometimes, in fact, the storm overwhelms you. That's a reality. Sometimes, he blesses you with his watchful eye rather than his immediate presence. He won't always in the storm. He won't always be visible to you, but he will always be there, always. And he's enough. Now, in some ways, this can seem too abstract. Like we're talking, yeah, he's there, he's enough, etc. You might be thinking that you'd like something to sink your teeth into, something a little bit more substantial. I'm telling you, there's nothing more and certainly nothing better than our Lord Jesus Christ. He's all you need, all you need. That's not abstract, that's concrete. Jesus is really there. He is really Lord of everything. And if you have received him. Humbled yourself. Come to him by faith. Repented of your sin. Received Christ as your Savior. Then you have everything you need. To weather any storm. In response to hardships. And discouragements. Disappointments. Failures. Sorrow. Pain. Learn to see that Jesus is Lord of everything. Learn to recognize that he prepared this storm for us, and in a sense, us for that storm. And then humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Don't let yourself think that this isn't fair. Other people don't try to serve you, and their life is so smooth and easy. You answer prayer for other people but not me. Remember every enjoyment we experience in this life is a gift from God. Make sure you thank Him for the good things that He gives you. Don't obsess about the troubles that you experience in the meantime. Because every trial, every heartache, every pain is given to us by our good God and always for our good. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of that wonderful hymn like a river glorious, is God's perfect peace. Over all victorious in its full release. Bright increase, I'm sorry. Perfect yet it floweth, fuller every day. Perfect yet it groweth, deeper all the way. Stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, finding as he promised, perfect peace. And rest. Hidden in the hollow of his blessed hand, never foe can follow, never traitor stand. Not a surge of worry, not a shade of care, not a blast of hurry touch the spirit there. Every joy or trial falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the sun of love. We may trust him fully, all for us to do. They who trust him wholly find him wholly true. Let's rest in the Lord. Trust in him. Listen, he's going to bring things into your life that are irreparable, that can't be undone. And you can survive that. You can make it through that. Because you have Christ. And he's strengthening you. And building up building you up and preparing you for that glorious day when you'll be with him for all eternity. Let's remember that.